Hello everyone and welcome to Two Goals. I'm Maria Laura. And I'm Katya. And we have an excuse to mention our endearing alma mater today, the Football Business Academy, which has been tremendously supportive of our project. And the reason be is because we are interviewing one of their last additions, a lector, FA, intermediate, researcher, coach, and more recently, an expert consultant for women's football. Nicole Allison, we're very lucky to have you here with us today. Hi, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Hi, Nicole. So we would like to begin this conversation by understanding your football passion and we know you're a Tottenham Hotspur fan. <laughs> so, and when we, we mention Tottenham, when we mention England, we are talking about English football and the heart of football culture. Can you describe us how it was being a fan, a football fan inside of the English football atmosphere? And can you tell us how was the match day experience back then for the little Nicole? <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, yeah, so well, you've done your research in, into me being a big Tottenham fan. Yeah, so um, I've been a season ticket holder at Tottenham actually for 20 years um, with, with my dad and brother. Um, and it is very much part of our identity, I guess, and uh, as our, with our family. So huge part of my life. And, and for me growing up, um, I actually, my, my, my first word was uh, Tottenham. Um, oh. So even before mum and dad, my first word was Tottenham. <laughs> I've got a, my brother's seven years older than me. So I, I didn't have much chance because all I wanted to do was be like my brother and, and play football with him in the, you know, in the garden and, and with my dad and, and, you know, my, my mum and dad were always very supportive of me playing football. Um, I was the only girl playing at primary school. Then when I got to high school, um, girls couldn't play football with the boys and there was no girls football team, unfortunately. So I had to, I was kind of pushed into the the kind of traditional women's or girls sports at the time, which was netball and hockey. Um, played mainly hockey, um, wasn't quite so good at the netball. I was too restricted. Um, played hockey and then kind of got back into football and, and football was really always my my main thing and I continued to go and watch Spurs um, throughout the whole of my life and for me going to to the game you know it's it's far more than just the 90 minutes you know football it, it was traveling um, from where we lived at the time was Worcester um, which was is about a three-hour journey actually to North London Tottenham so um, three hours there three hours back it was some serious commitment that, that we did and that we gave to to watch the game and my dad and brother still travel from Worcester now to to the games as season ticket holders um, so it was very much a, a kind of family affair as well my mum would come at times um, and it was just fantastic and I think for me you know little Nicole never um, felt intimidated never felt like I was out of place being a girl. Um, I just loved every moment of it. I loved the atmosphere at White Hart Lane, um, you know, kind of walking walking up the stairs and then out into, into the stadium. We sat um, at the Paxton Lane, which was uh, to begin with the kind of family stand. Um, and, you know, White Hart Lane was a, a fantastic stadium, very, very close to the pitch. And yeah, had have great memories of, of watching Spurs there, even if we weren't very good at the time. Under <laughs> um, uh, sort of uh, Christian Gross as manager, um, George Graham, times with David Pleat, Glenn Hoddle, um, and then sort of started to, to improve under Martin Yoll, um, Villas Boas, and of course, you know, Pochettino um, being being the one for the last five years who have just who's really, you know, taken Spurs to the next level. And 
now being a season ticket holder at the new stadium again an amazing experience and I feel so lucky every time I, I go to a game to be able to be a fan that can experience that for you know for every game and, and I'm in that one tier um, stand where we've got I think it's 17,000 fans can can be seated or, or actually more more to the point standing um, and it is safe standing there at, at Spurs as well they have all of that in place um, and it's just a phenomenal stadium um, it, it really is so yeah feel feel very lucky um, and now I just hope that I can get to see us win something. <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's see let's see next year next year <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed i say that every year katia but who knows? <laughs> so uh, then uh, you translate your football passion to coaching as a starting point of your career you were the head of girls football and teaching assistant at the chase school and after that you also performed as a soccer coach in boston And nowadays, uh, we are aware that women's football needs to be built from grassroots and in order to, to have the talent and consistency in the future. So this kind of work with girls is more than needed for the development, as we know. Can you describe to us how was the experience of working with girls and what were the main outcomes that you gained from that? Yeah, so, I mean, for me, you know, I'd obviously always played football and, and at the time I was playing for Wolverhampton Wanderers. Um, they, they were the team that I played for for the majority of my playing career. And I, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, if you like, when I became an adult. All I knew is that I really wanted to do something in football, but I didn't really know what opportunities there were out there. I, I didn't know what types of jobs there, there were. I didn't know where to start. Um, you know, career support and career advice at school and college um, in, in those days definitely were prepared for a, a girl to say they wanted to work in football, put it that way. Um, so for me, coaching kind of was the, the obvious next step, if you like. And I think probably that's something that a lot of players feel um, that it was an obvious next step. But, but maybe that's just because we didn't know other doors were open um, at the time. So um, going down the coaching route, I, I really enjoyed it um, and got the opportunity to work at the school that was quite local to me at the time. And um, they wanted to develop um, girls football there. They wanted to develop girls PE more generally. And with my background of coaching and playing football, it was a quite kind of perfect opportunity to go there and, and really try and develop um, a number of different teams to actually get girls playing and, and competing within that environment. And at the end of that, so we had from year seven all the way through to years 13 uh, before, before the students could go off to university, if that's what they were doing. Um, and by the end of my two years there, we did have a, um, a, a team for every single year. So a year seven, year eight, et cetera, team, which was great because when I started, we, we had nothing. Um, and of course, like you said, it was, it's so important to have that developmental stage and that phase where, you know, girls at school can feel like they can participate and try something new. Um, football isn't and hasn't been part of the curriculum here in England um, as part of PE and so it's been really tough to actually enable girls to have that access to playing football and that is something that, that the FA and through the title sponsorship with Barclays um, they're working really hard on to ensure that girls have 
access to playing football at school. Um, and, and I think we were quite lucky really at the chase and that we had lots of great facilities and I could essentially create a player pathway for, for the chase school and then on to, to county and other teams that, that were around the area. So that was really positive. Um, and actually, I think one of the players that played there at the time is now the football development officer um, within that county, which is fantastic. So, you know, has gone on and, and not just coaching, but also gone into a, a, an administrative role um, developing football for the county. So that's that's really positive. Um, and, you know, I think the coaching for me, although that isn't the route that I then ended up going down, it was actually really helpful that I had a knowledge of the coaching pathway um, you know, the opportunities for coaching and, and going over to the States was um, a bit of a dual role where I was a coach, but also got the opportunity to work in the marketing department for the Centre of Excellence at uh, Mass Premier Soccer, who is now Global Premier Soccer. Um, so I got to really experience um, both sides of, you know, a kind of marketing end and also the coaching side, um, which which was really great. And you know, I took that experience um, with me, you know, as far as my career has gone so far. It is really interesting that you mentioned that you were able to, to have the opportunity of checking both coaching, but also kind of like the, the, the outside the pitch um, experience. And then you, you start your role as a marketing research manager for the English Football League. Could you tell us like what kind of changes have you witnessed in marketing since then? Yeah, so um, when I finished in, in Boston, that was really at that point when I, I knew that I wanted to work in football um, from a more business and commercial perspective. So I actually got offered um, a job, a coaching role to stay out in Boston um, for, for a longer period of time. But I made the decision to, to come back to the UK and study at uh, Birkbeck University. And I studied my master's degree in sport management and football business whilst I was then working at a sports sponsorship agency. So I studied part time and, and I did that for two years and worked at Kantar Sport for three years uh, before then moving to the English Football League. Um, so when I was at Kantar, that was really my first experience of working within a big organization that was dealing with sponsors, with research, with fan insight, with data. Um, and it was fascinating because we would do all sorts of work, working with um, sports properties, with brands that were looking at either sponsoring within inside sport or already sponsoring inside sport. And they were, were working out what their media valuations and return on investment of their sponsorships were. Um, so we would be looking at the, the audience insight from linear TV or, or digital or even social media and calculating the, the valuations um, according to the exposure, uh, the, the number of exposure and the number of kind of seconds that, that these brands would have. And, and it really opened my eyes to, I guess, how kind of technical the sponsorship side of things were and how actually brands were, were monitoring how much return on their investment they were getting from the sponsorship, um, the, the rights fee that they were putting into it. Um, and that was really interesting. And it, it also felt quite um, old school to me in a sense in that it really was, it, it felt like it was quite a transactional relationship. Um, whereas to me, sponsorship felt very much um, like a relationship. You know, it was about that brand, that sponsor, wanting to develop a relationship with their customers and when they're sponsoring in, in sport you know that the customers are also the fans of that particular property that they're sponsoring be it a club or a league or a federation 
um, whatever it is. So um, it was really interesting to then move on to the Football League where I, I created really a, a kind of fan data strategy because when I, when I started there, we looked at what information, what research, what insight we had on our fans, and it was very little. But yet we knew we had 72 professional football clubs within the, the football league, so in the Championship League One and League Two. So we knew there were, you know, a huge amount of fans um, in this country that, that, you know, were part of and experienced um, in any way through watching on TV or going to a game. They were experiencing the, the football league, um, but we didn't really know anything about them. And so without knowing you know, enough about your customers, about your fans, how can you properly have a marketing strategy to be able to personalize content with them or engage with them and, and critically be able to provide your sponsors of, of the Football League with a genuine kind of two-way communication with, with these fans, with these customers. So um, for me, that kind of marketing um, journey was started really in Boston as being, you know, a kind of operational marketing piece around flyers and how to actually organize a kind of marketing event so then moving on to media valuations and, and exposure through tv and audience measurement to then being about genuine relationship and dialogue between fan and sponsor brand and rights holder and club and with all this baggage um i'm sure that you were one of the tops i mean like back then as a commercial manager, you were one of the tops for clubs that were in the first division. And I mean, when you start working for your once, I mean, for your favorite club, I mean, when you moved to, to Tottenham Hotspurs, you start as a commercial manager. Yep. And, and you were lucky to, to have all this huge perspective from the English league. But tell us a bit about the difficulties. I mean, how is it to, to be part of the commercial tip of a, of a club which isn't huge, which isn't like in, in the top moment at that time? Yeah, it's, it is tough. And, and I guess even at my time at the Football League, um, I would be working either with the sponsors of the Football League themselves or, or also working with the clubs to help them with their sponsorship strategies. So I would could be working, you know, one week with um, a really big club like a Leeds United or, or a Sheffield Wednesday or Wolverhampton Wanderers who were in, in the league at the time when I was working there, who had huge fan bases, so big, big clubs. Um, but then also on the other end of the spectrum, smaller clubs such as, um, you know, Grimsby Town or, or even... Um, Dagenham and Redbridge, which were in the league at the time. So it was, it was a good way of learning how to adapt and, and understanding, I guess, the resource levels at the different football clubs that are involved in the football league. Um, and then when I actually took my, my step into women's football and started working at Tottenham, um, that was even more of a, a kind of, you know, eye opener because working with, with Tottenham was, uh, well, Tot Tottenham ladies, as they were called at the time, um, they were a separate entity to Tottenham Hotspur football club. So, all of the staff members um, or the ownership, the governance, the leadership was completely different. Um, so as much as we were called Tottenham Hotspur, it was actually a, a separate entity and run, run by different people. Um, and it was very much the, the kind of first step really into professionalizing um, that club because they'd been in the third tier, uh, the third and fourth tier of women's football. They'd then in, in the summer of uh, 2017 got promoted into what is now called the, the Women's Championship, so the semi-professional league, second tier. And as part of the FA criteria to be in that league, 
you have to appoint certain members of staff and, and be run in certain certain way, you know, having different business criteria, um, having a commercial plan, having a marketing strategy. Um, and that's at that point when I came on board um, initially as a co commercial consultant, um, working with, you know, maybe three or four other people that were at the club at the time. Um, and it was really about how could we develop a, a sort of investment structure where we could start to build more money coming into the to the Tottenham Hotspur ladies. Um, you know, at the time that the money was basically being put in by Tottenham Hotspur, um, but of course we wanted to be become self-sustainable and we wanted to start generating sponsorship and interest. Um, but what was really difficult at, at that point was that we were, even though we had, you know, this name of a huge global brand like Tottenham Hotspur, we were essentially a grassroots football team um, and we needed to really build our, um, our property and understand again who our fans were, who might be our customers and who might be the right sponsors for us. Um, and an added difficulty or, you know, consideration, because it, it's also an opportunity here. Um, but when, when we did, I guess, our SWOT analysis um, at Tottenham Hotspur Ladies here about our commercial opportunity, of course, one of our huge strengths was that we were associated with Tottenham Hotspur. Um, so a huge, huge global brand, the, the power and the value within, you know, the, the, the Tottenham brand, the cockerel, the, the kit um, was, was our biggest opportunity. But we couldn't go and sell that um, IP, if you like, separately without working and collaborating with Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. So that was really the process and the start for me to start building bridges and, and really strong relationships with Tottenham Hotspur and their commercial team, who, of course, were managing key partnerships like, you know, AIA and, and Nike, who they have and, and Audi and uh, William Hill betting and all, all these different brands that they have. It was actually really the first process for us and for me was to say, let's build a relationship with this team because we aren't two, two separate, um, you know, companies. We, we are, we should be as one. We are Tottenham Hotspur um, and actually coming together creates such a more powerful offering. Um, so that was really the first step in, in that particular role was to develop a relationship with the Tottenham Hotspur commercial team and, and they were fantastic and were very uh, keen to support us as well. Um, and it kind of then been built from there to say, well, actually, hang on, you know, how can the, the women's team actually provide value to Tottenham's current partners like AIA, for example? Um, and we started actually then getting some of our players at Tottenham involved in some of the sponsorship activation that AIA were, were doing. So instead of it always just being, um, you know, three or four of the male first team players being part of a sponsorship activation, we then started to actually have it as two men and two women. Um, and that was great experience for our players as well to be part of, you know, part of marketing and it, it helped build their brand. And, um, you know, these things take time. But that relationship was then built with with Spurs, and and now you know we can see that actually they're developing really great sponsorships for um, you know together as as a as a whole brand with Tottenham Hotspur, but also those that are then specific to the women's team. But they've got the support and the resource behind them with with the genuine uh, backing of the Tottenham Hotspur commercial team. I think you have mentioned an, an amount, a large amount of examples on how to how to actually try and grow a new team and, and what are the, the different opportunities on creating relation with, with relevant stakeholders. But actually, I don't want to sound redundant. It's just, you mentioned something that is really important to highlight. You think that maybe 
as as you have been a researcher for women's football you think maybe there are plenty of things that that people haven't like the decision makers for women's teams they haven't deployed because they haven't actually done their work of understanding this like this new market maybe it's because they they only rely on on older brands like you mentioned okay because you have the name of tottenham hotspots you just You, you don't need to, to go further for the women's team. Do you think that maybe that's the problem that they, they rely a lot in the, in the males, in the males team, for example? Yeah, potentially. And, and I think that's always a danger. You know, if, if you do think that oh, we'll just copy what, what we do for the men's team, we'll have the same strategy for what we do with the men's team, for example, that's definitely not the answer. Um, you know, women's football is different. The, the customers are different. Um, and so therefore you need to have a different approach and a different strategy. Um, that said, if you have a powerful you know, brand and name behind you, then that's where you need to come together. Um, but you need to have separate strategies and understand that, that they need to be bespoke dependent on, on the audience, you know. Um, so there's definitely a, a danger of, of potentially being, I guess, complacent um, if you're, you know, a top men's team that have a women's team and then, and then you just think we can, we can do the same with what we've always done um, and we'll just replicate it and it'll be great and, and, and that's it. Um, it won't work. And, and so that, that, that definitely is the case. Um, and actually in, in some respects, we've seen some obviously fantastic examples of independent clubs um, or, sm or smaller clubs, such as let's say Lewis FC, yeah. who of course do have, you know, a men's team as well, but because they, because they work completely, you know, equally and they, they have quite a, uh, because they're obviously fan owned, they, they're community owned, they, perhaps more have more flexibility to do different things from a commercial and a marketing perspective than let's say what you would working with a Tottenham Hotspur or an Arsenal or a Man City where actually you're part of a, a huge organization where you know marketing plans and strategies and, and working with big, big global sponsors as well has to be very structured um, lots of you know people have to sign off different processes and actually it can make the process slower And arguably for something like women's football, where we are in such a developmental stage, it's almost like a, it's almost like a startup um, culture in a sense. You want to be flexible. You want to be a bit quirky. You want to be a bit different. So you, depending on your, on the context in which your football club sits, you know, are you associated to a big Premier League men's club or, or a big brand that's already established and a fan base is already there for the men's team? then you're starting to look at, okay, how do we build a strategy to start bringing over, you know, the fans that are there for the men's team and actually make them fans for the women's team as well. How do we provide them with a unique, better experience at our women's football matches? But then if you're a club that's independent, London City Lionesses, for example, as, as well are a great, um, a great case study for, for how they're doing things. And, and they've got the, the kind of benefit of being able to act very quickly. And, and for London City Lionesses, you know, they're, their board, their decision makers are purely focused on London City Lionesses, the women's team. They don't have another team to think about. Um, you know, so there, there are pros and cons to, to different scenarios and different contexts in which your club sits, really. And uh, going back to your work position at Tottenham, uh, after acting as a commercial manager, as you described before, you stepped up to, to be the general manager of the club. 
Could you please share with us what were your biggest goals when you started in this position and also your most memorable achievements and learnings? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I got the opportunity to, to then become um, the full-time general manager, which, um, you know, as, as you guys now know, I'm a huge Tottenham fan. It was pretty much a, a dream kind of uh, come true and a, a dream job. And, and I felt that, you know, the opportunity, not just for the club, but for women's football as a whole at, at that time was just so massive that it, it was an opportunity I, I definitely didn't want to want to miss. So, so I changed a lot of my plans. I was working freelance at the time um, to, to take that job on uh, full time. And I think when I first started, one of the first things that, that we did um, was really just create a strategy because there hadn't been one at all uh, before then. So it was about getting on paper a strategic plan to say, where do we want to be in three years time? Um, what are our key goals and what do we need in order to meet those goals and how are we going to do that? And that includes, you know, the different people that you need to engage with and you need to educate as what you're, who you are, what you're going to do. Um, because really the, 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 the women's team had kind of gone under, under the radar for quite a long time. So a huge part of the strategic process was actually relationship building with Tottenham Hotspur Football Club in, in terms of, you know, in every department. So um, I, I didn't have an, an office there, which made it quite difficult. So I, I worked from home during the day and then the team trained in the evenings three times a week at the training ground. Um, and so in the evenings, I would be able to go meet with the players, meet with the coaches. That was my time with them. Uh, but during the day, I would be either working from home or I would be going in and, and, and having meetings with as many people as possible at Tottenham Hotspur so that I could introduce myself, talk to them about the women's team. We were now obviously in this new um, second tier of women's football where we had um, business criteria that we had to meet. So I was regularly talking to them, regularly talking to the FA to ensure that we were not just meeting criteria, but we were actually then building as part of our strategic plan to, to develop, you know, a, a growth strategy for the club. Um, and I'd say really, I mean, greatest achievement has to be the, the promotion. Um, so actually getting promoted to the women's super league after only two years, you know, that was um, a lot earlier in our, in our strategic plan, I have to say, but we were quite opportunistic as well in the, in the 18, 19 season, um, in the championship, the top two teams got promoted to the Women's Super League. Normally, it's just the, the team that becomes champions and wins. Uh, but this time, it was also second place. And it was the year that Manchester United had first entered their uh, team into the league. And they were fully professional, even though it was a semi-professional league. So Manchester United had Casey Stoney um, as, as head coach and obviously brought in some really top players. And they had a full-time training um, programme. So we kind of knew that they would be head and shoulders above the rest. But it, for us, looking at that season ahead, we knew that we wanted to get that second, second place uh, spot. And we recruited really, really well. We were very quick to do our rec recruitment. We knew the players that were becoming available. We knew those that would make a key difference. Um, you know, we signed Rihanna Dean, uh, Megan Wynn from, from Millwall Lionesses, Jessica Nars from Arsenal. Um, and other key players as well that, that gave us a really good squad um, and we got that second position to get promoted and it was a key moment you know in, in the history of the club because what that really allowed Spurs women to do was really be beyond that kind of pedestal and, and to really be well known not just amongst everybody at Tottenham Hotspur but amongst all other 
clubs in, in, in England, but also internationally. And of course, huge for, for Tottenham Hotspur sponsors and commercial interests to be able to say that they have a, a, you know, a, a good performing Premier League team and a great performing um, women's team in, in the WSL as well. So um, it was a huge moment for, for everyone involved. And, you know, I mean, the work and the commitment, dedication that comes from the players and the coaching staff is just phenomenal. And, and actually, it was, it was the main reason why I then went on to, to become an intermediary as, as one of the things that I do now was my just sheer admiration for the players, particularly um, for holding down full time jobs, for you know, being mums, for studying, for coming to training, starting at eight o'clock in the evening, sometimes 8.30, working extremely hard um, after a full day of work, getting back home sometimes for some of them at midnight or past midnight. Um, and and then coming back, doing a full day of work, doing the same thing again, training, and you know to play at the level that that they did, it was just amazing. So um, you obviously heard from from Helen Ward a few weeks ago as well, who you, you just hear her story and what she's had to juggle um, to to be able to play at you know that level as well as being a mum as well as working, playing internationally. It's just insane. So um, just built huge respect for these players, and um, and then that kind of took me to to where I am now. Yeah, and now just you mentioned about respect. Uh, just uh, out of curiosity, and I hope you can you can build a bridge here. Is I just want to ask you about the kind of movement, let's say, that occurred occurred some time ago in England, which was the changing of the women's club names. Uh, almost all the clubs were called ladies: yeah. Arsenal ladies, Tottenham ladies. So, and I just recall seeing a statement published by Arsenal at some point stating they were no longer called Arsenal ladies and they, they will be called Arsenal women. And I, I say this because I'm from Portugal and we, we have no, not so many access to, to this information. And this was the one that st uh, stood out to, to my eyes. And um, that happened with the majority of the clubs. Tottenham was an example. As an English woman working in the game, can you share with us your perspective on how this change impacted the women's football panorama? It was something that was really important for the development of the game overall, or do you think it, it is just a case of semantics? I think it was a really important um, moment in the game, to be honest, because it was almost just showing that clubs were moving into a modern era. Um, you know, the, the kind of connotations that, that the phrase or the word ladies um, brings out is almost like, I think, I think it was a play, I think it might have been Carly Telford actually that quoted this as almost like she sort of said, when I hear ladies, I think of one sipping tea, you know, it was very <laughs> much all ladies that lunch and all these sorts of things. Whereas actually, you know, what we were creating here in the Women's Super League was a, an incredibly elite professional product that was about power, strength, innovation, and that didn't seem to fit in terms of a brand fit really with like the, the, the word ladies. It just didn't feel right. And I was delighted to start seeing see clubs change from, from being Arsenal ladies to Arsenal women and, and Chelsea did the same. But actually they went those two clubs went a little bit further as well, um, which I particularly liked. So Arsenal um, made it clear actually that they were dropping the ladies in completely and that they were only going to use the women if it needed, um, you know, if the context needed the clarification that they were talking about the women's team. So actually when you're just talking about 
women's football, they'll just be called Arsenal um, instead yeah. of Arsenal women. And I think that was really important. And then Chelsea, I think fairly soon after um, Arsenal did it, they actually changed their name to Chelsea FC women. Mm-hmm. So they were quite clear in that they wanted to have, you know, the sport first before gender. Um, so that's why they had Chelsea FC and then women rather than Chelsea Women FC, yeah. uh, which again, I think was a really important step change. And it, it just sends a message to everybody involved that, you know, we take our women's team very seriously. We are progressive, we're innovative, and this is this is all about development and, and progression and, and, you know, bringing it into the modern era. Um, and, you know, you did then see lots of other clubs sort of follow suit. Some of them did it quite quietly without actually really, um, you know, saying much. It was just a quick name change um, and that was that. Others kind of made a bit more of a play on it and, and did more of a kind of marketing campaign around it. Um, but I think it is really important. And, you know, we've also got to look at it from a commercial perspective. E- even if you don't think or don't agree that ladies seems quite old fashioned, um, I'm pretty sure the vast majority of modern forward thinking brands do think that. So if you're a, a women's football team that are currently called ladies and you're going to be looking at bringing in sponsors and investment into your club, which of course you want, um, you need to start thinking about the language that you use because I don't think that those brands would want to partner with those clubs that are, that are currently labeling themselves as ladies because it does suggest it's more old fashioned as opposed to wanting to be part of a new innovation. Nicole, just uh, to close this part from, from Tottenham Hotspurs, you lived the experience of promoting a team of promotion and entering the FA WSL means professionalization or at least should mean for teams. Do you think that every club in England right now, overall, they're prepared to face this situation? Of professionalization? Um, though, well, those clubs in currently in the, the Women's Super League, you know, are and, and actually have worked obviously incredibly hard to build those standards and the criteria that the FA set have, have kind of got progressively harder um, as, as the years have gone on since the WSL started in 2011. Um, and then even more so now, the clubs that are in the championship, for example, um, obviously Liverpool that got relegated, they're a club that know what it takes to be part of the Women's Super League. And, and actually, yes, there's been some quite a few negative reports about Liverpool in, in, in recent times. Um, but, you know, from, from kind of what I hear and what I know, there's, they, they, they do put a lot of money into it still. Obviously, not as much as, as the top teams, but, but they still, you know, it's, it's not a sort of that insignificant amount. Um, compared to to others, when we look at the two teams, the two leagues, sorry, um, Liverpool are remaining full time and, and professional in the semi professional league. Uh, Leicester City are, are going full time, um, even though they're in the Championship. London City Lionesses are full time training as well, and I think we'll we'll soon start to see other clubs um, within that Championship really progress to that. And what what those clubs in the Championship are able to do is is kind of again build that sort of strategy, like I did at Tottenham, to say okay. It's we're going to do this in two years, three years, four years, five years, whatever it may be that fits the club um, and be able to know what it takes to become professional. Um, you can't just become professional overnight. That, that's that's the thing. It's you know, it takes a, an awful lot, not just of money, but of, of people and of skill sets and of knowledge. So it's something that needs to be built into a into a long term strategic you know, growth plan. Um, and I think more and more clubs now are becoming, you know, 
aware of what that will take and I do start to see other you know clubs that are Premier League clubs that, that maybe don't have a women's team as yet or, or certainly not a women's team in the top two leagues that are starting to look at their women's program and starting to say okay hang on what do we need to do to professionalize this within the next two to three years and how do we go about it let's now move from Tottenham and talk about the present you after you you moved from Tottenham as I said you created your own agency Nicole Allison Sports Consultancy can you explain to us what is your value proposition and what is your role inside your company Yeah, so for me, when I when I left Spurs, and I, and I knew I was going to leave Spurs um, sort of months before the end of the season, I knew that I wanted to create a consultancy where I could share my my knowledge, not just of my time at Spurs, but of my, my time throughout my 10 years of working in, in the football industry, and of course, my academic background as well. Um, I wanted to do more research, I wanted to, to develop more knowledge in the women's game, I could see the opportunity there. Um, and I wanted to share that knowledge more. And, and so I started the consultancy um, with the view to really being able to provide that knowledge to a variety of different organizations. And, you know, in the last 12 months, I've, I've been to different countries, spoken to so many different people and, and provided support and consultancy to a variety of different organizations, rights holders, clubs, brands. And, and it's been really, really interesting. And And, you know, I wouldn't have got that opportunity being, you know, just at one club or just, a, you know, a, a rights holder, for example. So um, and that's where I, I suit. That's what I enjoy the most is having, you know, every day is different. And I get to meet so many different people that way. Um, and I'd always also done uh, teaching and lecturing. Um, I've, I've always really enjoyed that. I guess that was a part of coaching me as well. Um, and so I want to develop um, an opportunity for me to, to do more lecturing and and you know, be able to engage more with students. I've always worked with them and, and sort of done quite a bit of mentoring with students, um, even ever since actually I graduated from my master's degree myself. So there were some opportunities for me to to come on board, um, obviously such as the, the Football Business Academy where I'm now teaching and and with a few others as well to to share my knowledge with students and help mentor those those coming through, you know, as kind of young people into the game and helped shape their career um, because actually I realized and I learned that without people in my life being able to guide me a little bit, I wouldn't have got to where I got to, you know, right now. So that was something that was really important to me. Um, so the, the, the kind of original plan was to do, you know, consultancy and teaching um, and, and add more time for doing more research, academic research as well. Um, but as I sort of touched upon before, my, enjoyment and I guess relationship that I had with the players at, at Spurs was something that I really didn't want to lose um, and so that was my decision then to become an intermediary and, and be able to support those players um, and, and help them not just from a on-pitch performance side of things but actually very much off the pitch in terms of helping them with a dual career I think that's something that's really really important um, media opportunities commercial opportunities as well Um, so, so that's then when I kind of created the, the overarching consultancy, which really offers three things, the consultancy, the lecturing and, and support, mentoring for students, and, and then also the athlete management as well. And, and it's kind of growing from players to coaches and, and also just generally um, people within the industry that, that look for support and mentoring. Katia and I, we, we both had the, the pleasure to read your report going beyond on pitch success, fan engagement as a catalyst for growth. 
and we would like you to to go deeper on this like these three let's say or two main main ideas that definitely we we need to take into account to to develop the women's game and taking advantage of the relationship that women normally tend to have a lot like closer more with with fans than men yeah yeah so the the title for that report was actually um the title of my dissertation when i was a student back in 2013 um and i did that research all on men's football um and because i was really interested in in sort of fandom and i i chose that topic because i wanted then to go down a more kind of commercial and business route and from my experience at the time of of being you know at the football league and and, and at Cantar where i was when i was writing that um I could really see that football clubs had a, a real inability to think long term um, and their strategies were very much based on what was happening on the pitch at that time. You know, so it'd be let's look, um, let's look to next season. Can we can we develop more into the stadium or, or can we, you know, um, potentially bring in more staff to help us in this particular area. All of those things were dependent on whether the club got promoted or whether they won a specific game. It was all completely dependent on the on-pitch results. And of course, you know, if you're in marketing, if you're in commercial, you, you, you can't control what's happening on the pitch. Even if you're the manager, you can't 100% control what's having, happening on the pitch. Um, and this is where, you know, football and, and sport differs to normal business and normal marketing, where you can control your product, you can control how great your product is, whereas in, in football, you can't control that. So as a marketeer in, in football, you need to be really aware of that. Um, and so this research that I did in 2013 really brought about some very interesting outcomes and, and you know, conclusions as to how football clubs needed to have more of a long-term growth strategy that was more based on fan engagement and how they um, engaged um, and provided a great valuable experience with their fans to build loyalty with their fans. Um, and so then fast forward, you know, eight, seven, eight years, um, in April, of course, when, you know, the, the um, COVID-19 hit, and we were all thinking, right, suddenly football stopped. What, you know, what's going to happen? There were lots of reports about women's football, um, you know, how it was going to survive this. Obviously, it was just in a moment of, of real growth and momentum. This couldn't have been worse timing. Are we ever going to, you know, have women's football back? And I actually wanted to just write a report that was, I, I really kind of saw similarities for where women's football clubs are at the moment and where the men's football clubs were back in 2013 when I did that research and if if the women's football clubs could just take some of the you know findings from my research about being strategic being long-term putting fans at the center of their strategy then I really think they will develop sustainable um, sustainable you know programs and pathways for the club to eventually become completely self-sufficient and of course that's really where we want women's football to go we don't want to constantly be be wondering you know will will the men's team be able to to give us this much money this season what if they get relegated again all of those on pitch performance elements that you don't want to have to rely on actually for the women's game for clubs at the moment this is a perfect time to build fan-centric strategies um, so the report that, that i put out in april was really about the opportunity specifically for the women's game to do that 
Um, obviously, without fans being at games, and we didn't at the time of me writing, we didn't know when the season, whether the season would continue, number one, or when the season would then start again. So actually, you know, clubs have to think outside the box. How do we start engaging with with our fans? You know, uh, we need to do this remotely. We need we need to start building loyalty. What are we going to do when we can go back to the games? We want to be able to attract these fans back. Um, and I think this is a, a question not just for women's football, but for football and sport in general. But when we do get back to having fans at stadiums, we need to ensure that the experience is improved from what it was before. Because, of course, you know, fans are, are, have, have been hit badly with, with COVID. We all have. We're in a, a kind of global financial crisis right now. It, we cannot just assume that these fans will come back to the game, buy their season tickets, buy their shirt, buy their beers, buy their food, and revenues will start coming in again to these clubs because people might not be able to afford that. People might not want to. People might not feel safe. Yeah. So clubs need to be aware as to how they're going to start creating a safe environment at, these, at, the, at their matches, but also an entertaining and an engaging one. Um, and I think women's football is perfectly positioned to be almost the leaders in that. You know, we're, we're in a position where because we're a developmental sport at the moment, uh, we don't get, you know, tens of thousands of people coming to the stadiums. They're still probably, um, you know, average of, of 2000, let's say. So how can we how can we ensure that we bring those 2000 back, that it's safe, that we're engaging, that we're providing a great experience so that these fans want to want to return um, so that the club can retain these fans and also build on those new ones. And when we look at the FA, for example, looking at their um, growth game plan for growth strategy, mm -hmm. that they've just finished the report as to after those three years, how things have, how things have done, have they met every goal? Um, and they've done a fantastic job uh, across their three goals. Um, but the one in particular that I look at in terms of doubling fans, yes, they've had a great, you know experience of bringing fans to more matches this season in the 1920 season but we need to look at the key reasons why and, and lots of clubs have done fantastic marketing there was a women's football weekend for the first time which is yeah. brilliant but also being at those big stadiums um and we need to ensure that we're not just getting the, the top attendances of 30 35,000 at the big stadiums but then you know, the week after when they're playing back at their normal stadium, they're only getting 500, 600 people. We need to look at what's happening in those situations and look at actually, okay, what's the experience like for fans when they're going to, to the women's actual home ground and, and to, you know, to their facility? Because it's, it's easy to put on a great experience at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Um, but actually, you know, how do we how do we make that better when when we're playing at you know Boreham Wood or or the Hive or, or down at Lewis? Um, and and so that's a huge part of of my thinking moving forward um, around you know fan centric approaches for growth strategies at clubs and and the fan experience being absolutely central to that. Yeah, absolutely, and just adding what you said now at the final part. We know and we have the proof that we can do it. We can uh, have the, the fan experience every week if we look, for example, at the Chelsea example and uh, uh, let's say Arsenal because the last games, they were sold out. Uh, unfortunately, the pandemic came and uh, we could not see the, the games uh, sold out. But we know now that it's possible. It's just a matter to believe it and to put it in practice. And thank you for the, the insights that you share with us. And me and Maria, we truly recommend your report as it is, it is a guide that, that will be very useful to some stakeholders, for sure. 
Nicole, unfortunately, we are closing this episode. We learned, we've learned so much with you and we would like to thank you for sharing a professional and personal pathway with us and with all our listeners. We would like to remember everyone that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the name Two Goals Podcast. You can listen to us on all podcast platforms and also on YouTube. Thank you for listening to us and stay tuned. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>